Okay, so today we continue our study of the Dhammapada. Continuing on with verses 13 and 14, which read as follows. Yatha agarang duchanang uthi uthi samati vijjati evang abhavitang jitang ragos samati vijjati yatha agarang suchanang uthi na uthi na samati vijjati evang subhavitang jitang Rago na samati vijhati. And the meaning is as follows. Yatha agarang, just as a, a house or a building, duchanang, that is poorly thatched, or a roof, just as a roof that is poorly thatched, the rain is able to penetrate. In the same way, an untrained mind, rago samati vijjati. The uh, lust, lust is able to penetrate. And number fourteen, just as in regards to a well-trained mind. Oh, uh, sorry, in regards to a well-thatched hut. Rain is not able to penetrate. In the same way, a well-developed mind, lust is not able to penetrate. So, quite useful for, for meditators. This is a meditation teaching. It was taught in regards to the Buddha's cousin, the Buddha's cousin Nanda. When the Buddha went, after, the, after Siddhartha Gautama became enlightened, he went back to uh, his home of Kapilavattu and he taught all of his relatives. And so he taught his ex-wife, he taught his son, he taught his father, and they all were able to understand the teachings. But there was, there was one person who, it seems the Buddha would understood he had had the ability to penetrate the teachings but was kind of stuck in a bit of a rut and that is that he was set to get married to the most beautiful woman in the country Janapada Kalyani which means the beauty of the land so in, in the area where they lived she must have been the prize beauty so she was well known for her beauty and Nanda had become infatuated with with this beauty and so, like ordinary human beings, he he felt that that was going to bring him happiness to, to marry this woman and to live a, a life of, uh, of sensual pleasure. But Buddhists, as Buddhists, we always throw monkey wrenches into these sorts of We always put a rain on people's parades. So, uh, and the Buddha was certainly certainly our leader in this regard. So on the day when they were to be to be married, or, or during the, the marriage preparations, they invited the Buddha to come to receive alms. And when the Buddha finished his alms, he, he handed the bowl to Nanda. When the Buddha finished his meal and, and had given a, a talk on the, on the teaching, he gave his bowl to Nanda and he started walking back to the monastery. And so 
when he got to the top of the stairs, Nanda, Nanda thought, well, I guess he'll take his bowl back now. But he didn't, he didn't say, excuse me, sir, can you take your bowl back? Because he, he, he felt that that would be rude. And he had a lot of respect for the Buddha. And he, he, he had great respect for the Buddha's teaching as well. And, but the Buddha didn't take back his bowl. And so they got to the bottom of the stairs and Nanda thought, oh, now he'll take back his bowl. And the Buddha didn't take back his bowl. Then he got to the door of the palace and he thought, now he'll take his bowl. And they got to the door to the city and now... He, and he kept thinking, following after him with his bowl, thinking, why does this Buddha take back his bowl? And so people saw this and, and they started passing it around and, and they sent word back to his, his, his bride-to-be saying, it looks like this Samana Gotama has, has uh, decided to capture your husband, uh, your, your future husband, and he's going to spoil your, your whole plans. And so she ran after them. And she called out to him, Oh, please, noble, please, noble sir, hurry back soon, in the most uh, pitiful voice she could muster. And so this was, of course, tearing at his heart, because he was very much in love with her. And you know, making the Buddha look like a bit of a meanie, no? And so the Buddha, when he got back to the, the monastery, Nanda still thought, okay, well, when's he going to do it? He got right all the way back to the Buddha's kuti. And the Buddha turned to Nanda and said, So, Nanda, would you like to become a monk? <laughs> and Nanda's thinking in his heart, No, 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 I wouldn't like to. But he, he had so much respect for the Buddha, as people in this situation often are when confronted by a person of authority. And he had been so used to, of course, to going, going uh, according to the flow, because he was a prince and he was uh, living in luxury, and you just kind of go along with things and everything is... is is wonderful because well, you're a prince. So, so right away he said, he said, sure, I'll become a monk. But in his heart, he was he was so mortified that he would have to become a monk. And so the Buddha said, okay, and he called the other monks over, and they ordained him right then and there. And then the Buddha took him back, I believe, to Rajagaha, and at that. In, in that time, Nanda started getting quite perturbed and, and it was quite miserable as a monk, of course, because he was always thinking about his, his bride-to-be, who he was desperately in love with. And he thought, this is my soulmate. This is the one person who means anything to me. And here the Buddha has taken this from me. He wasn't upset at the Buddha, but he was, he was so miserable because he was always thinking about the pleasure and the, the great, great love that he had for her. And so he said to his fellow monks, he finally he had enough, and, and he said to them, he said, I've given up, I'm going to disrobe and become a layperson again. I can't take this anymore. This isn't, this isn't my, my role in life, this isn't my path in life. I'm in love with this woman and she means everything to me. Of course, this is how we always justify it, right? When we have sensual pleasure, we always claim that there's a person who has some importance. Uh, we never, never get right down to it and say, I just think she's beautiful and I want to see her and touch her and, and receive pleasure from her. We say she's, she has great meaning and, and she's my soulmate and so on. This is how we always feel. What happened, so they, they brought him to the Buddha and they said, Lord, Lord Buddha, this Nanda here, he's, he says he's going to disrobe. And the Buddha takes Nanda, he took, took him, he, he said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll look after this. He took Nanda by his arm and 
brought him magically. First, first he brought him to this burnt out, burnt out forest. Like it was a forest fire, and it was totally burnt down. And all there was left was this she monkey, this female monkey who was clinging to a, a stump of a tree you know, that she had probably used to live in, but it was like the last standing burnt out tree. And her tail had been burnt off, and her her ears had been burnt off. And what else? Her her, her tails and her tail and her ears, and her fur had been singed, and so on. And there she was clinging, in great suffering and pain, and, and just looking like a total miserable sight. And the Buddha said, "You see that monkey over there?" And he said, "Yes, yes, I see that, that monkey." And he didn't quite understand what the, the point was. This female monkey there. And then he said, okay, now let's go. And he took him magically up to the heavens. And he took him to the Tavatingsa heaven, I think. And there he showed him 500 dove-footed nymphs, or pink-footed nymphs, I think is the... I don't, I'm not sure what the Pali is, but something about their, their feet being pink. But be just beautiful nymphs, of course, angels. And the thing about nymphs, of course, is that they're, they're, they're so much more beautiful, essentially attractive than any human being. It's, it's hard to imagine. It's not like just beautiful women. You see, these are, are, well, these are people with great merit, and so they have become very beautiful as a, as a result of their, their beauty of mind. And, and so the physical has, has come to reflect that beyond anything most of us have ever come across. So Nanda, Nanda was, was quite blown away and seeing these 500 nymphs playing around or doing their thing. And the Buddha said, So tell me, Nanda, which one is more beautiful, your wife, Janapada Kalyani, or these 500 dove-footed nymphs? And Nanda, who by this time had, had kind of forgotten about his wife, he said, Venerable Sir, if you... If you compare my wife and that monkey that we saw, uh, my wife, these, these dove-footed nymphs are, are as much more beautiful than my wife as my wife is more beautiful than that, than that monkey. And the Buddha said, well then, so, then, then I tell you what, Nanda, if you stay as a monk and you try your best to follow my instruction and to live the holy life, I promise you these 500 nymphs will be yours, will be your entourage. You will be, be born into this state to, to frolic around with the nymphs. And Nanda, he, he wasn't, I guess at this point, a very, a very deep individual because, well, like most of us, he, he, he gets caught up with, with uh, emotions or with lust, no? And this is because his mind is untrained. And so he, he, his mind would just wiped out the memory of his, of his, his bride-to-be or his, his soon-to-be wife. And, and was, was overjoyed at this thought. He said, well, in that case, I'll, 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 I'll work really hard. Because suddenly he had seen something that most human beings never see. This, this something that he thought was well, he, he thought his wife was was on on the top, <laughs> and here he's seeing something that, in his mind, is much greater. Which, because the the essential attraction would have been much greater, the perfection of these beings 
would have attracted him. And uh, so he, he became quite excited and he became much, much more interested in living the holy life because he realized that even in India, this, before, even before the Buddha, they, they believed this, that through the practice of, of austerity or, or whatever, you could go to heaven and, and, and enjoy great sensuality in heaven. So he thought, he thought, wow, it must be true. This must really be the result of practicing the Buddhist teaching. So he was really excited. And uh, it just shows how fickle the mind is, really. The whole idea of soulmates is kind of thrown out the window. And so from that point on, he practiced quite diligently. And the Buddha kind of helped him along, as I understand, because the Buddha let it be known what their agreement was. And so all the other monks came to know that Nanda is only, only practicing because he wants to have uh, intercourse with a bunch of sensual a bunch of celestial nymphs. And so they, they called him a hireling from that point on. They said, oh, Nanda, there goes Nanda the hireling. Oh, hello, Nanda hi the hireling. Because he has been, it seems that Nanda can be bought with a price, or can, can, be, can be bribed. This, so they were, they were scorning him and so on. And so he felt quite ashamed about that. But nonetheless, he worked really hard because he felt like he now had the, he was now both in line with the Buddha and in line with his desires, because he he, he had done what most people do when they see, when when this situation comes. He had made a new decision that these were his soulmates, or this was his destiny to be with these ones. And so he worked very hard, and and as a result of working very hard, slowly, slowly, his mind changed. His mind calmed down. Uh, his mind became relaxed, his mind uh, became clear, and he was able to see the, uh, the arising and ceasing of phenomena, and he was able to follow the Buddha's teaching and understand the five aggregates, and able to break them up. And to the point that he began, he began to lose his, his desires, and lose his lust, and that he was able to see that really, whether it's his wife or whether it's these celestial nymphs, it's all just nama and rupa. No? It's all just experience, momentary experience that arises and ceases. He came to see that this is impermanent, unsatisfying and, and uncontrollable. And as a result, he, he gave it up and became an arahant. He, he, he gained the realization and his mind let go and he entered into Nibbana and was able to become an arahant. Now, at the moment when he became an arahant, he went back to see the Buddha, and he said to the Buddha, uh, you know that bargain we had? Well, he wouldn't have been ashamed, but he said, that bargain that we have, Venerable Sir, uh, I release you from that, bar that, that bargain. And the Buddha said, from the moment that you became an arahant, I was released from the bargain. And this is the story of Nanda. Nanda. And then the monks heard about, or the monks, uh, as usual, they would, they would uh, tease him and they said, so Nanda, still thinking about, uh, still thinking about some, some nymphs, or, or what are the nymphs, nymphs for today? <laughs> What's the goal for today? Still thinking about uh, your wife, still thinking about those nymphs? And he said, no, before I, before my mind was untrained and so I thought about them, but now my mind is trained and so I don't think about them. And they listened to this and they thought, listen to him. He's, because this is a serious offense if you lie about something like this, pretending to be enlightened. 
So they went to see the Buddha and they said, you, you should hear what Nanda is saying now, he's pretending to be enlightened. Maybe he thinks he'll get better nymphs that way. And the Buddha said, my son is, uh, is correct. Before when his mind was untrained, it was like a roof that was ill-thatched. And now that his mind is trained, it is like a roof that is well-thatched. And so he told this verse, he said, just as a poorly thatched roof is penetrated by the rain, so an untrained mind is penetrated by lust. I think part of the part of what helped him, uh, which is an interesting aspect of lust, was there would have been the realization that his mind was just that his mind was really just playing tricks on him. Because this this is born out in reality. People who think that they have met their soul match or that they they, they get the idea of self, you no, know, and they think I like this, I like that. And, or, or this is my preference, my wife, my, my lover, and so on, my soulmate. Uh, they, they can, they can on, a, on a heartbeat, turn and fall for something else. And the realization of, that this is the, the nature of the mind, that it jumps like a fire. As the Buddha said, Nati Raga Sama Agi. There is no fire like, like Raga, like, like uh, lust because it jumps from one object to another. Fire, you can contain it. You can contain most fires uh, by digging pits, by digging trenches. No, fire won't jump to a rock, it won't jump to water. But lust jumps to anything. We can lust after just about anything. This is why when you're born in a different realm, you become, you begin to lust. If you're born a dog, you lust after dogs. If you're born a dung beetle, you lust after dung beetles. So what is the teaching here for us as meditators? This is the story part. As for what this can do for us as we come to uh, see our minds in this way, we come to see our minds as having holes, like, a, like the hole in a roof. Our, our minds are permeable. And so our job as meditators is to thatch the, the holes, to patch up the, the holes. And the way we do this we by developing our minds, just as the roof has to be patched, has to be well covered over. So too the mind has to be well uh, sealed. The way to seal the mind is in three ways, the development, the development of the mind, or the development. The first is the development of morality. And that's where we're starting off here, because at the beginning you don't have concentration, you just have your morality. What is your morality? It's you've stopped so many things, you've stopped connecting with the world, and also you've stopped letting your mind wander. So when you see something, instead of looking at it, you're saying to yourself, seeing, seeing, that's morality. It's the, the, the narrowing your, your activity, your, your mental activity, because that's what's going to bring concentration. Normally when you walk, you're also thinking and you're doing, you're, you have no morality or no, no control over the mind. And now you're, you're, you're in some way trying to control. In, in restrict yourself, morality. So when you walk, you say walking, walking. And even more so when you're practicing meditation, you're severely restricting your, your, your mind to just the bare awareness. When you hear a sound, hearing. When you see, seeing. When you feel pain, pain, pain. Not letting your mind uh, dwell or, to, or develop or, or uh, uh, make more proliferate, that's the word. 
So that develops concentration from morality. Morality is the first layer. And morality is good because it, it, it prevents you from getting caught up in, in, uh, in distraction and in doing many things that would, that would hurt your meditation. But the next level, as you continue on and continue on, you'll develop concentration. Concentration is the second way to, to uh, patch up our minds or to seal up our minds. Once you develop concentration, then your mind won't even give rise to liking or disliking. Once you're, ab once you're able to see the object, right? So you watch the rising and you watch the falling and you know that it's rising. At the moment when you know that it's rising, your mind is perfectly clear. It's perfectly dry. You know? the, the, the lust, the desires can't come in. Your, the, the fire can't come in. It can't drive you off to go and chase after celestial nymphs or whatever. And the, the point being that these things are all uh, impermanent and they're all relative. They don't really have the ability to satisfy. They'll create pleasure for some time. And even being born in heaven is not something that is permanent because it has a power and it has a force and that force arises and ceases. And so when you develop concentration, your mind will not... Uh, give rise to these lusts. You'll, you'll just see things as they are. Once you see things as they are, wisdom will begin to arise. And the question is, why, if concentration already stops these things from arising, why is ne wisdom necessary? Because concentration, just like any roof, it's temporary. As long as you keep the keep patching it up, you know, it, it will uh, it will protect you. But when you leave it alone, if you leave your roof alone, eventually the elements will will penetrate it. The mind is the same when, when, when you stop practicing meditation, when you leave it alone, all of it will come back. So this is, this is a, good, a good way of protecting the mind that many people in the world use, but it's not the ultimate method of protecting the mind. The ultimate one is when you develop wisdom. As you're looking and you're seeing things clearly, you begin to penetrate the characteristics and the, the nature of things, the nature of reality. Right? Our reality, even right here and now, sitting here, is one of phenomena arising and ceasing. Sometimes we're seeing, sometimes we're hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. We have our emotions and all of these things are, are arising and ceasing. We begin to see this and we're able to break them apart and see them for what they are, one by one by one. And we realize that there is no, this idea of self, this idea of me, being able to experience pleasure or, or become this or become that, it's really just a delusion. When the attraction towards some being or something is just a, a mind state that arises, and it arises and it ceases. You begin to see the, the progression of mind states. When you give rise to lust, what happens? It creates attachment, and the attachment leads to disappointment when you don't get what you want. Um, when, you, when you dislike something, it leads to anger and frustration and directly to suffering. And when you see this, you start to lose interest. You start to give up. You start to realize that nature doesn't admit of liking or disliking. It doesn't admit of, of good or bad. The liking and the disliking comes from creating ideas about it and ideas of self. That this is my experience and wanting that experience again for yourself. Once you just see it for what it is, your mind doesn't have anything to cling to. It doesn't have any interest in anything. 
doesn't say, I want to be that, I want to be this. It's able to just experience. Once you do that, once you get to that point where you see things as they are, because there's nothing positive or negative in anything, really. You think this is good or you think this is bad. It's all, in, it's all a, a concept that arises in your mind. When you see through that, then it doesn't matter what comes to you. This is the ultimate protection because nothing can penetrate. The reason why we have give rise to likes and dislikes, we give rise to lust in the first place, is through ignorance. Because ignorance is, well, ignorance is the default, no? not knowing. All, everything in the universe comes together. It doesn't come together out of knowledge. It just comes together and arises and develops. Wisdom is something that isn't inherent in the, univer in the universe. Wisdom has to come afterwards. It has to come as a result of all of this coming up and the systematic uh, observation and eventual understanding. Once you understand, then none of it can affect you. Then, then you don't give rise to likes or dislikes. Then your mind is perfectly well thatched. And so that is the development that we're trying for here. We're trying to just come to understand things. It's not intellectual, it's by repeated observation and direct experience once you see it again and again and again for what it is. You, your mind will change, your way of approaching things will change. You'll have no desire to chase after things. You're knowing that when you chase after it, you know what it leads to because you've seen that. You have no desire to be angry or upset at things or frustrated about things because you know what frustration leads to. And furthermore, you see these things for what they are, so you don't think of this as bad or this as good. When something happens, you don't have any judgment for it. You see that it happens and you let it be. So this is the teaching for today. This is really what we're trying for. We start with, we start with morality, bringing our mind in, and then we develop the concentration which allows us to see clearly. Once we see clearly, our minds will be free. Our minds will be well-thatched thatched so well, in fact the word well is an understatement, they will be totally waterproof or, or lustproof in this case. So this is the teaching on the Dhammapada based on verses 13 and 14. Thanks for tuning in and back to meditation for you.